Hi folks, be sure to visit my website at dr-history.com for a short personal video message, to listen to the latest stories, and to leave a comment. And Turner with us for Dr. History. And great to have you with us today. Good to be here. I, last week I was in the sunshine and the warmth. Today, not so much. Yeah, definitely not so much. <laughs> not so much. White stuff. Oh, uh, windy and cold, but it's Idaho. Yep, it is. Yeah. What have you got for us? Today? Well, I'm going to say hi to some people. I got a uh, comment from a gentleman by the name of Aiken. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. I hope I am. And he is from Turkey. And he has suggested that there's a story we can do on America's longest horse race. So I'm going to look into that. Another listener named Rollin, he has suggested a story about a place called Caribou City. And Rex uh, sent me uh, some information, he says, uh, about Bonnie and Clyde. He said uh, his grandfather lived back in those days, and the movie gives you the, uh, the idea that maybe everybody hated the law. And his grandfather said, no, we were law-abiding citizens, and Bonnie and Clyde were, uh, yeah, they were, uh, as he said, white trash. (laughs) Now, also, Dennis said that his great-great-great-grandfather wrote a book. His name is Elias Johnson Draper, and I'm going to look into that. And one more, Matt up in Alberta, he has suggested a story on the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, and also a guy by the name of uh, the Mad Trapper of Rat River. <laughs> rat? Rat River. We have a Rat River. We have a Raft River, but this is Rat River. Okay, yeah. So, <laughs> so I'm going to look into those stories, and I appreciate you folks that, uh, that uh, uh, send me suggestions. I appreciate that. So we're going to continue today with more about the buffalo, mm-hmm. the great American buffalo. So... Uh, the, or if you want to be technical, bison. But we're going to call it buffalo. We're not even. We're, yeah, that's all we know about them anyway. So, so the Blackfoot term for a buffalo jump, and I'm going to explain that, is called a push, pishkun, which translates roughly to mean quote deep blood kettle. Now, most known buffalo jumps, and actually they number in the hundreds. I didn't realize there were that many, but they're located along major river valleys on the northern Great Plains at the Vor Buffalo Jump near Sundance, Wyoming. Uh, calculations taken from a bone bed that is 100 feet in diameter and 25 feet deep. This suggests that perhaps as many as 20,000 buffalo were killed over, you know, quite a few years, obviously, but the uh, pile of buffalo bones beneath another one called the Ulm Pishkun Buffalo Jump, which is over by Great Falls, Montana, is one mile long. And another one, which I have mentioned and talked about, is called the Head Smashed In Buffalo Jump, which is along the eastern face of the Rocky Mountains in Alberta, Canada, and it has a bone bed that is 30 feet thick. And I have been to that one, and they have an amazing visitor center, and it's just over the border from uh, Idaho up into Alberta. So folks, if you get up there to uh, Glacier National Park, go a little farther and go up to that buffalo jump. 
Um, but you know, the great mass of buffalo bones at these jump sites kind of attest to their productive uh, nature, uh, but it also opens up a little bit of a mystery. You know, is anyone with experience moving sheep or cattle in a direction? Have you ever tried to herd cattle or sheep? Uh, they never want to go where you want them to go. No, but the Indians, to get large animals moving in a direction uh, that they don't want to go, uh, that's pretty amazing. And uh, what would compel buffalo to commit suicide, basically jump over a cliff? So uh, there's the Bonfire Shelter, and it's probably the southernmost and, and probably the oldest buffalo jump in the United States. The cliff's face is about 85 feet high. Now, at that elevation, the buffalo would be falling at about 47 miles an hour when they smacked the ground. And it seems that the Indian hunters didn't like their cliffs to be much taller than that, probably because the buffalo would be too smashed up to be any good. Yeah, so so I guess, you know, they figured that out. But, uh, you know, the Indians would lure them into position, and there are historical accounts describing hunters who were so skillful in the ways of buffalo that they could dress up in a buffalo hide and lead a curious herd into the region of the trap. Now, folks, I talked a lot about buffalo jumps a year ago, and if you want to go back um, uh, for more detail, that was on April 14th of last year, my show of la- uh, last year, and just go back there and I talk a lot more about the buffalo jumps and, and how dangerous it was. But uh, the Madison Buffalo Jump in western Montana, the evidence suggests that groups of as many as 100 hunters may have gently herded the buffalo to the where they jumped over the edge. Now, when it says gently herded the buffalo, I don't know how that looks. Because <laughs> yeah. it seems to me you'd have to get them running. But anyway, the yeah, next... they're not just going to step over the side. Right. They've got to be moving and be pushed over by the ones behind. Well, the next step, uh, which was get the buffalo moving. So Indians used a variety of techniques to get the stampede going and then to control the motion and the energy of it once it got going. So they let the wind carry their human odor to the buffalo. They lit wildfires. They waved torches. They hid in depressions in the ground and jumped up just in time. They built rock uh, uh, piles in the shapes of humans, and they simply chased after the buffalo, waving their arms and yelling and screaming. But still, there's this question. How would you scare a buffalo herd so much that it would actually stampede off a cliff? rather than turn into one way or the other. Uh, And actually, uh, if you look back to that story I did a year ago, some of them did turn, and unfortunately, some of the Indians actually did get uh, trampled. But to be fair, the word jump is not particularly suitable for describing how buffalo jumps worked. Uh, The animals did not plunge off the cliffs in a suicide flight. In the fall, uh, the buffalo suffered a lot of injuries, fractured bones. I mean, you can only imagine. Well, yeah, especially if there's already bones down there. Yeah, and then the buffalo would land on other buffalo. Yeah. Their horns and their hooves would rip into each other's hides and their flesh. And believe it or not, there were 
animals that weren't hurt at all if they landed just right. Uh, but some of them would be trapped under the weight of the herd above them and would die. But again, some survived the fall. Uh, some of the buffalo calves would wander about in a daze, uh, bellowing for the moms. Uh, anyway, like I said, there were many survivors, uh, wounded, but still alive. So, uh, uh, near a place called Immigrant, Montana, over 1,500 arrowheads have come out of this ground beneath a buffalo jump. So, this obviously suggests that uh, such kills required a lot of mop-up. So, you had a lot of injured buffalo that maybe couldn't move or were hobbling around. But the Indians usually constructed obstacles to help contain the wounded animals so they couldn't run off. So, some type of a corral at the bottom to uh, so they wouldn't wander off. And if they were injured, obviously, you don't want them wandering off and, and dying. But when it was all said and done, a successful buffalo jump must have been, uh, and this may be hard to, uh, to believe, but maybe actually a thing of beauty. Uh, and uh, I suspect that they, the Indians experienced a, a feeling of awe, of gratitude, happiness, relief, accomplishment. I mean, if you think about this, and again, the Indians were very sacred when they took an animal, deer, elk, anything. They uh, they were grateful to the great spirit or whatever and for the spirit of that animal for giving up its life so that they could have uh, whatever they needed. But uh, if you think about it, a buffalo jump provided clothes, furniture, jewelry, artwork, luggage, cookware, bedding, and food. So... The Indians gained from the smashed-up buffalo at the foot of the cliff all these things that sustained their lives. And they didn't waste it. They did not waste any of, their, of the buffalo. So their entire lives were contained within this uh, pile of blood, meat, and fur. And all they had to do was pick out the parts, rearrange them, and put them back together again in useful ways. <laughs> so, you know. But uh, Indian hunters had a lot of clever ways of killing buffalo. Uh, they'd dress in wolf hides. They'd crawl up close enough to sink a, an arrow into the rib cage. A hunter might kill several buffalo this way before the herd uh, took off. Now, early in the spring, buffalo calves were so dependent on their mothers, they, they wouldn't run off even if the mother was dead. So the Indians would uh, snatch up the calves by the back legs and just take them home. And, uh, you know, I don't know if they actually maybe even raised them or if they went ahead and just butchered them. So yeah, is that I don't... where we got some of our domesticated cattle is because of these calves that they would capture? I don't know that. I don't know. Uh, who knows? But, uh, you know, in the wintertime, the Indians would herd buffalo into snowdrifts. And while the animals were floundering, floundering uh, on their legs in the snow, the hunters would walk across the drifts on snowshoes and, and kill the animal. Uh, now, if the ice on a lake was slick, the Indians would chase buffalo out there and then spear the animals when they fell down. Now, on the Missouri River in the winter of 1805-1806, the fur trader, a guy by the name of Charles McKenzie, watched the Mandan Indians use another trick to kill buffalo on the ice. Now, what they would do is they'd drive herds to the banks of the Missouri, now where the ice was weakened, and, until by the weight and pressure of the, of the buffalo, large squares of ice would give way, and a bunch of these animals would plunge into the river and would actually 
actually be carried under the solid ice uh, to a little place below where they would emerge, and they were floating, and they would be caught by the women and children and the, and the men, and just pulled ashore, butchered. And it was the first freezer. Yeah, I mean, they were, it was cold. So anyway, in the summer and fall months, they'd kill buffalo with fire and water. Now, I'd never heard of this before, but along the Mississippi and Missouri rivers, Indians would torch vast tracts of land next to the river and then wait for the buffalo to jump into the water to escape the fire. Now, while swimming, the animals were so slow that the hunters could grab onto their hair and slit their throats while they swam. I didn't know they swam that slowly. I didn't either. And wow. But uh, the Indians could just zip out there, swim out, and grab one. Now, there was an explorer and a missionary named Father Louise Hennepin, and he described how the Indians would set large fires that encircled the entire herd, and he says, quote, except some passage which they leave on purpose and where they take post with their bows and arrows. He continues, the buffalo are thus compelled to pass near these Indians who sometimes kill as many as 120 in a day. So that's a lot of work. Yeah. So but if you got the picture, you've got this fire surrounding the the buffalo with one way to get out. And that's where the Indians are with their arrows and their spears and whatever. So now sometimes Indians would use nothing beyond their own bodies to corral buffalo. So a group of hunters would surround small buffalo herds and then close in until the animals were contained in a circle. Now, you could only do that with a small herd. You know, I don't I'm going to guess 20, maybe 30. And, you know, all we ever see on TV or movies is these herds of two or three, four hundred. You know, well, that wasn't always the case. So they would enclose these, uh, and the Indians would kill the buffalo as they tried to escape. And they were a lot of times so close that the hunter could actually pluck his arrow out from the side of the animal before it fell and broke the arrow. You know, they, they didn't want to break their arrows. So despite the ingenuity of these me- uh, methods, uh, large scale, uh, the slaughter of buffalo, uh, typically by the use of buffalo jumps, uh, that actually kind of began to drop off with the introduction of the horse. Um, you know, the Indians would kill as many buffalo without having to rely on luck to put the animals in the proper position. Uh, from then on, the most common hunting method was Indians who, again, this is not safe. They rode right into the running buffalo herd and they would shoot their arrows. And by then, they had, some of them had guns and uh, into the animal at point blank range. And, you know, I've heard a story that you cannot kill a buffalo if you shoot him right between the eyes. Because the skull's so thin? I guess. I, I have heard that story somewhere. Uh, it so seems I, to me, though, that being on horseback would be a lot safer than standing on the ground and right. reaching out and saying, here, buffalo. Right. Yeah, trying to, trying to chase him over the edge of a hill. Yeah. Yeah. So... You know, a buffalo robe is a tanned hide with the hair still on it. The animal was usually killed in the fall or the winter because that was when the prime fur was on, you know, thick. Now, from 1830 to about 1870, the robes were the driving factor of the buffalo trade. And probably, I don't think a lot of people know that, but they were fashionable in the eastern United States and even over in Europe. 
and they were a necessity in the West. I mean, obviously, you know, your mountain men, your Indians, the pioneers, they used them for warmth and, and cover. But people used buffalo robes for mattresses, blankets, coats, or about anything else for which you needed something warm and soft. And I'd never considered them going back east. But the market absorbed as many as 200,000 buffalo robes every year. And these were supplied almost exclusively by the Native American Indians. So they sold the buffalo hides. They wanted, they used what they needed, but then, and they obviously used the meat and everything else. Now, uh, so prices for robes varied depending, depending on the region and how dishonest the purchaser was. One buffalo robe might fetch a hand-sized wad of tobacco or three cups of sugar and a cup of coffee beans or uh, 12 steel arrowheads. Three robes could get you a bracelet, 20 robes, a gun, and one of the robes would retail for anywhere from $5 to $50 in the East. So basically, these guys were getting robes for next to nothing, yeah. you know, probably less than a dollar. And, and they probably were already tanned, already to be used. Uh, some weren't, some weren't. Actually, it would be nasty if they weren't. Yeah. Well, the Indians uh, may have gone on selling small numbers of buffalo hides for decades longer without running out of buffalo if it hadn't been for it's called a kind of a perfect storm of factors, factors that struck the buffalo herds uh, around 1870. And perhaps the most important was cheap transportation that came to the Great Plains in the form of the Transcontinental Railroad. So at that point, the Great Western Herd was said to be divided into a northern herd and a southern herd. Now, obviously, buffalo continued to cross the line and you know, a lot of them were killed by trains, and actually, sometimes the train would stop, and passengers would get out and actually shoot buffalo, and I hate to say it, but just for sport. Oh, wow. But it was generally generally recognized that tracks created kind of a buffalo-free zone across the center of where the animals ranged. But besides fragmenting the buffalo's habitat and providing an efficient way to transport massive amounts of buffalo hides to the east, the railroads delivered guns and people to the Buffalo country. Now, I said this is a perfect storm. So the second phase of the perfect storm began when commercial tanneries in the eastern United States and Europe made some discoveries about buffalo hides. They'd been experimenting with skins for years, but the hides were, they were hard to work with. They were too thick. Right. So it was hard to work with them. Uh, and in the end, the product was too porous. Now, I didn't realize that, you know, you could have porous hides and some that weren't. Eventually, though, uh, they stuck on a system by which they could produce high-quality buffalo leather with elastic tendencies that was perfectly suited for belting and footwear. And these were called flint hides. Flint hides. And I'd never heard that term. But they were air-dried, and they were untanned buffalo skins, and they started to come in. And because the tanneries were producing hairless leather, it didn't matter what time of year you killed the buffalo. Because they weren't using them, they weren't using them for bedding or, or warmth, but they were using them for all kinds of other things. 
Now, uh, one of the large, uh, first large requests for these flint hides came in 1871 when a merchant in Dodge City named Lobenstein took an order for 500 from a tannery in England that was producing leather goods for the British Army. So it was clear over in England they were wanting buffalo hides. Now, Lobenstein hired two suppliers to get the hides, and the suppliers turned to a young man named Moore. Now, this guy was born in 1851. He headed west after the Civil War, got started in the buffalo business by hunting uh, meat to feed troops at Fort Hayes, Kansas. After moving to Dodge City, he found work selling buffalo meat to the people working on the railroad. He was a respected and polished buffalo hunter when he started hunting for the flint hides. And like I said, there was an order for 500. He had 557. He sent 57 hides to his brother in New York City. The brother sold the hides to another tannery and placed an order for 2,000 more hides. So anyway, the... They started killing off more and more buffalo. By the end of 1872, thousands of buffalo hunters converged on the Great Plains. And I know we've got a caller, but let me just tell you some names of some of the guys that came in. Uh, Buffalo Bill Comstock, Buffalo Bill Cody, Cross-Eyed Joe, I don't know how good he would have been, (laughs) Apache Bill, Buffalo Curly, Wyatt Earp, Pat Garrett, Tom Nixon, Limpy Jim Smith, Bugshot, Buckshot Roberts, Squirrel Eye Emery, <laughs> Mr. Hickey, Prairie Dog Dave, and California Joe. And these were men that just came out and uh, got into the business of buffalo hunting. So that's the story of, uh, you know, and I think actually I might continue this next week about the actual buffalo hunters, yeah. the the men that went out and shot and killed buffalo and uh, unfortunately left the meat to rot just, just for the hide. So I might continue this even next week. Okay. All right. That sounds great. We are out of time. How do people follow you and, and follow some of these stories? Because I know you've got them available. Yes. Or if people can't listen to them right now and they can pick them up later. If you just go to dr-history.com, all lowercase, there are 345 stories on there that you can listen to. Or if you go to Google and just type in Dr. History or to iTunes, you should be able to find me pretty easy. And like I say, there's about 340 stories on there. And uh, if you get really sleepy, you can listen to those and fall <laughs> fall right to sleep. <laughs> well, I appreciate the information. I think we need to make sure we hang on to our history uh, because that's what determines where we're going. Exactly. So, thank right. you. Thank you. Appreciate you.